0: Well, take your Bible this morning and look in the book of James, and we'll finish James chapter 4, and then we'll move quickly to 5, and we'll wrap this book up. But look at James chapter 4. We come to that marvelous, marvelous text on James 4, 13 through 17. I've titled it The Sin of Presumptuous Planning. Let me read the text for you as we walk into it this morning. Come now. Verse 13, come now, you say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I love that little phrase, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. A man was riding on his motorcycle into town, and he stopped as he was riding into town to talk to his pastor. And the man indicated that to his pastor that he was going into town to sell his motorcycle. And the pastor, paraphrasing James 4, 15, said, You ought to say, I'm riding in, into town to sell my motorcycle, if it be the Lord's will. And the man just rolled his eyes, laughed, and roared down the highway. Well, late that afternoon, the pastor looked down the road and saw the man stumbling. And staggering from one side of the road to the other, the knees of his pants were torn, exposing his skinned legs. His arm was in a makeshift sling. His shirt was half torn off his back. His face was swollen and black and blue. His hair was a mess. Incredible. His elbows and forearms were covered with blood and little pieces of gravel. What happened? And the man replied, after I left you, I was on my way to town and a big storm came up and I tried to outrun it but the rain began to fall like lumps of lead and as I was going around the big curve I hit some loose gravel and the motorcycle slid out from under me I skidded more than a hundred feet on the pavement I managed to get up but the motorcycle was a total loss somehow I staggered to the nearby farmhouse and as I walked up to the door a frightened woman pointing a shotgun in my direction I started running and she started shooting. I ran through the brush and through the briars and I got all scratched up. And I came into a clearing and found a tree to shield me from the rain. And as I stood there picking the buckshot from my back, lightning struck the tree and knocked me out. I came to. I came to and in a daze and I simply started walking down the road. And the pastor asked, "Where are you going now?" And the man replied. I am going home, if it be the Lord's will. He learned his lesson, did he not? If it be the Lord's will. And we'll look at that in just a moment in verse 15. But remember, as we come to this section in the book of James, we're in that eighth section. And really, we're continuing the argument that we've looked at, that our faith, your faith, is tested by its reaction to worldliness. It's testing. You remember he began that in four four. you adulterous people, and do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he gave those 10 commands on which we were to repent of the sin of worldliness. And then as we moved into chapter 4, verses 11 through 17, he gave and provided two examples of of worldliness. And last week we looked at the sin of slander. And this week we look at just a second example of worldliness, the sin of presumptuous planning. Now, both of these sins are examples of worldliness that have at its core the sin of pride, which he addressed a few weeks earlier. And so what he does in 4:11 and 12, James addresses the arrogance of judging our neighbor and therefore stepping above the law. And now as we come to the text in 13 through 17, he deals with the arrogance of planning apart from God or the sin of presumptuous planning. Now what he does is he walk, as we walk through this text is he gives three fatal flaws of sinful presumptuous planning apart from God. And what it does is it's just an illustration of a worldly heart. And what I want to look at with you in our exposition here is first, the sinful audacity regarding today. Then secondly, the sinful assumption regarding tomorrow. And then thirdly, the sinful arrogance regarding the future. And we'll walk that through. Now obviously, he's in a passage that has Business terminology, okay? Now, the issue here isn't business per se. God made business, right? God made businesses to profit. The issue here, as always, is an issue of the heart motive. So he's not going to be... I want to be clear with you. It's not that business is wrong. It's the heart in which a man or woman looks at that business. And I would just say to you, it's very important... Not to compartmentalize your business model with your relationship with God. Many people do that. They look at their business and my business is my business. And then on the other hand, they look at their relationship with God and that's their relationship with God. And thus they compartmentalize those two aspects. You can't do that. It's all spiritual according to the Lord, isn't it? But let's dive into the text here. On first, the sinful audacity... Regarding today, look at the text again. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You'll note as you walk into the text, as you look down at the text in verse 13, he gives that phrase, come now. You'll notice if you, as you glance down, he says it again in one. come now, you rich. But that little phrase there just means... it. it it's a strong word. It just means, listen to me, is what James is saying. Come now, is the thought. It, it's as though he's, as he's writing under the Spirit of God, he says, now look here. Now I want you to get this. I want you to hear me, is what James is saying. And this audacious plan reeks with presumption. And I'll just touch on this. There's the who, the what, the when, the where, and the why. The who, obviously, is you who say. The what is they're going to do. See it in verse 13? They're going to spend a year there and trade. The when is today or tomorrow. The where is to such and such a town. The why is we're going to make a profit. I mean, if you just back up just for a second, it's all planned, is it not? It's all at their disposal. So he addresses the who, the you who say. Now, I'm not to say that all businessmen or women are saying this, but as James kind of eavesdrops on their conversation, he's addressing some, and he's addressing those this morning, you who say. And the picture here is a group of traders, a group of business associates, if you will, who have mapped out their business plan with no thought to the will of God. You who say. And so they have the who. Then secondly, there's the what there in verse 13. It just mentions in the ESV, we'll spend a year there and trade. The thought is in the language, we'll spend a year there and engage in business. We'll do some trade. I mean, they're thinking this is a juicy business. And I am on the ground floor. So you got the who, the what, and then you've got the when Look at the opening phrase in verse 13. Come now you who say today or tomorrow. That's the when. He says we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there. In other words, as these business associates look at this map, they're thinking all of their time is at their disposal. And they only, not only have the when, but they have the where. Can you see it there in verse 13? We'll go into such and such a town. And again, the picture is that of a man or a woman looking at a map and pointing to a certain spot on it and saying, here's the city, here's where we're going to go, here's where there's great business chances, if you will, and trade chances, we're going to expand our business, we're going to go there, we're going to go into this place, and they're looking at this map thinking about their industry, if you will. We're going to start in Parlier. I don't know. We're going to go to Exeter. We're going to go to Traver. Then we're going to take it to the coast. Then we're going to go to overseas. We're looking at Fresno, so forth. We're looking at the Bay Area. This is what they were thinking. They've got the when. They've got the where. And then they've got the, the why. Look at verse 13. And it says there, we're going to make a what? profits. They're going to do a deal. They're going to get rich. They're going to move on. I mean, this person is goal oriented and profit driven. And so here is this group of enthusiastic, industrious, ambitious business associates who are ready to make a buck. They've got the day, they've got the destination they've got the duration, they've got the direction, and they've got their end goal. They're going to make some dough, okay? I mean, it's all just planned out. And you might ask, I just want to be balanced. What's wrong here? Is it business? And my answer would be no. Is it planning for the future? The answer would be no. In fact, you would agree with me that any good business plan would reflect what is before us in James. No, it's the audacity, the sinful audacity, of planning apart from God that James rebukes. You know, when you look in verse 13, there's four verbs there, okay? And what's interesting is they're all future in their tense. Look at it again in verse 13. We are will go, okay? We will, it's in the language, spend. We will trade and we will make money. All future. Evidently to them, it's all at their disposal. But before we agree so quickly with James, let's take a closer look at the script of our own life. Maybe you could write it out. Come now. Maybe James would say, come now, you students who are so assured of that future degree, that future profession, that future job, your future athletic career, James would say, hold on. He might say, come now, mothers, who are so confident in your child's future. Come now, you families who are planning your summer vacation, your winter vacation. Come now, you business entrepreneurs who are so assured of success. Come now, you retired saints who desire to travel the globe when you're done. I mean, James may be talking to a group of business-minded people, but I trust that the Spirit of God is directly speaking to you. Now, this sinful audacity regarding today is foolish in light of the second here principle. The second flaw is the sinful assumption regarding tomorrow. Look at the text again in verse 14. He says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then he says, what is your life? I mean, they said that we will do this for a year. God says to us, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen the next 24 hours. I think the writer of Proverbs said it this way in 27 1 do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring forth I mean here are these business associates never thinking that their life could be cut short never thinking there could be a recession never thinking there could be hail, and in 10 minutes it's gone Never thinking there could be a freeze on a couple nights. Never thinking there could be a disease. Never thinking there could be drought. Never thinking there could be a death. It never entered into their mind. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said, I like the wording of it. He said, their hearts were stupidly secure and utterly insensible Of the changes of providence. End of quote. Just not thinking about God's sovereignty, God's providence. Listen, beloved, do you remember the man? Certainly, I think you do. In Luke chapter 12, whose business was booming, whose barns were busting at the seams. He had just brought in a bumper crop, and the man said to himself, Eat, drink, and be merry. And God entered into the picture in Luke twelve twenty, and he said, you fool, you fool. He said, this very night, your soul is required of you. And who will own what you have prepared? I mean, how sad that man was more concerned with his harvest than he was with hell. He was more concerned with the earthly than he was the heavenly, more concerned with the present than the future more concerned with his productivity than he was the purity of his own heart. You don't even know what your tomorrow will bring. It was said that when Napoleon Bonaparte was considering invading Russia, a friend of his tried to talk him out of it. And the friend said to Napoleon Bonaparte, Man proposes, but God disposes. And Bonaparte's reply was, I dispose as well as propose. And a believer, that's what they say in history, heard him say this and he said that I set that down as the turning point in Bonaparte's career. This friend said, he, the believer said, he will not suffer, speaking of God, a creature with impunity thus to usurp his prerogative. End of quote. And true that was. The Russian campaign marked the beginning of Bonaparte's downfall. Listen, man proposes, but God disposes. So he says, listen, you want to be careful of the sinful audacity regarding tomorrow because it leads to the sinful assumption regarding tomorrow. You don't even know that tomorrow's going to come. In fact, look at the text again in verse 14. He says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And This is how the ESV has it, period. And then it says, what is your life? okay now it's a question mark but you answer that question mark what is your life look at 14 again for you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes he says here's what your life is like in my life you're like a mist the nsb says it's it's a vapor in other words, here the scriptures are saying that life itself, the, the brevity of it, the shortness of it, the duration of it is like a mist, of vapor. It's the ideal of a puff of smoke. He said your life is a breath appearing momentarily and then it vanishes away. In other words, sometimes we think of a mist on a cold day. Your life is like a morning mist on the beach. Sometimes I'd grow up watching those old football uh, just highlights and they would show the Green Bay Packers. I remember that on a on a cold day, playing at the frozen tundra of Lambeau Field. And you'd see those four, you know, those big linemen just crouching down in their, in their stance. And out would come the breath, and then it would disappear. And out it would come. It was a freezing day. Out it would come and disappear. Here, James says, listen, you're planning your future. You don't even know what tomorrow's going to be like. Your life, beloved, is just like a mist. It's a, it's a vapor. You know what's fascinating, Grace Church of the Valley, is did you know that in the Bible, I think there are at least 18 metaphors that express the brevity of human life. Let me just give you a few, and I think some of these will come up on the screen. I think of Psalm 103, verse 15. As for a man, it says, there you can see, his days are like grass flower as a flower of the field so he flourishes when the wind has passed over it it is no more that's what the bible says about our life here they're planning their future and it's just it's a grass it's like the flower of the field i think of job in seven six he says remember my life is but a breath and when a cloud vanishes it is gone So he who goes down to Sheol does not come up. So quickly, is it not? Job 8, 9, it says this, For we are only of yesterday, and I know nothing. Here's what it says. Because our days on earth are as a shadow. Listen, I just spoke just a little bit ago about five generations. And it just goes like this. It's just a shadow. In Job 9.25, it says, My days are swifter than a runner. I think I, it might say something a little different. Swifter than a, a runner. They flee away. They slip by like reed boats. Just so quick. Job 14.1 and 2. Man who is born of woman is short-lived. Full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth. And withers. He also flees like a shadow, and he does not remain so quick. Think of that line in Shakespeare's Macbeth Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It's so quick. I mean, the sinful assumption here is you don't even know what will happen in the next 24 hours, right? We don't even know. David said this in 1 Chronicles 29, 15. We are sojourners, and our days on the earth are like a shadow. And I think, would you agree that the older we get, the more it feels that way, doesn't it? The older we get and the more you watch your children grow and you recognize the quickness of time, you recognize the biblical metaphors that our days are just so short. Think of that text in Psalm 39 where the psalmist prayed, Lord, make me to know the end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know, he prays this, how transient I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as hand breaths. And it was just a hand breath was one of the smallest measuring tools, if you will, which is just kind of about four fingers across was a hand breath. And so he says, thou hast made my days as hand breaths. It's just so short. My lifetime is nothing in thy sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom. He amasses riches and he does not know who will gather them. So quick. I mean, it's all over the text. Here's what David said in Psalm 90, verse 10. I think you've seen this before. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years. Or if due to strength, 80 years. And then this phrase. Soon it is gone and we fly away it's just so quick truly human life is a shadow it's a breath it's a vapor it's transitory it's a passing shadow our prayer should be that of Moses in Psalm ninety twelve. so teach us remember that one to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom I think Moses is right. Moses penned that in Psalm 90. Teach us to number, not our years. Teach us to number our days. When you think about life, the biblical picture, it's like a sparkler, kind of, on the 4th of July. It's a quick burst, and then it just disappears, if you will. And since, here's James' point, you cannot guarantee your life for even one day Can you really plan out your future with intricate detail? Really? Really? I I think of uh, Peter Marshall, the old preacher, told of an Arabic fable of a merchant in Baghdad who sent his servant to the market. And before long, the servant returned trembling. And in great agitation he said to his master down in the market place I was jostled by a woman in the crowd and when I turned around I saw that it was death that jostled me she looked at me and made a threatening gesture so he said lend me your horse that I might hasten to Samara and hide there so death can find me no more And the merchant loaned him a horse, and the servant galloped away in haste. And later the merchant went down to the marketplace and saw death standing in the crowd. And he asked, why did you frighten my servant this morning? Why did you make a threatening gesture? And death replied, that was not a threatening gesture. I was only startled and surprised. I was astonished to see him in Baghdad, for I have an appointment with him tonight in Samarra. And so it is. I mean, each of us has an appointment in Samara. Life is just a vapor. It just comes quickly, and then it just vanishes away. It was said long ago that when an emperor was crowned at Constantinople, that a royal mason would set before his majesty a number of marble slabs. And it would be right then and there that the, that the emperor was to choose one for his tombstone because the ancients thought it was wise to remember his funeral at the time of his elevation for his life would not last forever. And perhaps it would be a profitable ceremony. Don't mean to be so morbid. After a high school or college graduation, if students in the best of health could sense how short life really is. See, the sinful audacity regarding today is just foolish in light of the sinful assumption about tomorrow. And that itself can lead to this third fatal flaw in planning apart from God. Look at it, the sinful arrogance regarding the future. Look at verse 15. There the text says, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, We will live and do this or that. And just the thought is, is God is sovereign over the universe. And and he uses that phrase. This is what we should say. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that. It's an outstanding phrase. If the Lord wills. Now, this is not the only place that that phrase is found. It's found in other scriptures and Paul states it in other scriptures. Just, just listen if you want to write him down. Paul uses that phrase somewhat similar, if the Lord wills, in Romans 1.10. He says there to the church at Rome and whom he's writing to in 1.10, always, he said, in my prayers, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He wanted to come to the Romans. And so he prayed that he can come at last if, by the will of God, I will get there. He told this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.19. He said to that church and to those people, he said, I will come to you soon, 1 Corinthians 4.19, if the Lord wills. And so he would use that phrase. He used that same phrase in 1 Corinthians 16.7. He said, I hope to remain with you for some time. He said, if the Lord permits. And so you have these different things that were said. He said in the book of Acts in 1821, Acts 1821, I will return to you again if God wills. And so you have this phrase mentioned here in verse 15, if the Lord wills in other places, okay? Okay. Now, you might ask, does one always have to repeat that formula? And my answer would be no. You want to be careful that it doesn't just become a ritualistic formula. And the reason I say that is I can take you to other places where Paul did not say that. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 16, 5, said, I am going to Macedonia. That's simple. He's going. He didn't say, if the Lord wills. He just said, I'm going to Macedonia. He said again in 1 Corinthians 16.8, I shall remain on in Ephesus until Pentecost. No other phrase attached to it. Paul said in Romans 15.28, I will go to Spain. And there's no other attachment. So this is not a ritualistic phrase, but it's an acknowledgement, is it not, beloved? If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In other words, these business associates were... Uh, It was all at their disposal with no conscious thought of God's sovereignty, no conscious thought of his plan and his plan in their life. Listen, God is not telling us to make no plans. God is not telling you to make no profit. He's actually saying, make your plans and submit them to God's sovereignty. Now, that's an interesting phrase there in verse 15, if the Lord wills. And the Puritans loved that phrase, if the Lord wills. And what the Puritans did is they would fill their speech and fill their correspondence with the Latin equivalent of that phrase, and it was called Deo Valente. And Deo Valente just simply meant God willing. In fact, many of the Puritans would sign their letters with the initials D.V., which again stood for God willing. And I think Deo Valente needs to be the constant refrain of our hearts as we conduct the affairs of our life. If God wills, students must be written over your plans. If God wills, singles must be written over a life partner. If God wills, must be written over every ministry plan. Older saints need to say from the heart, if God wills, I will spend my time. All of us need to say, if God wills, I will wake up tomorrow. All of us should have that heart attitude. I still remember back, um, there was a book that came out and uh, it was a long time ago. I don't know why I remember this. It just popped into my mind which you got to be careful if illustrations pop into your mind when you're teaching. But it was, it was a book called Running. And it was a book, the guy's name was Jim Fix. Does anybody ever remember that? He, he wrote this book on running and it became very popular. And so Jim Fix took his book onto a talk show. And the talk show was with a guy named Dick Cavett. And Dick Cavett was interviewing Jim Fix about his book on running and the new national pastime that so many people were taking up. And as Dick Cavett's interviewing Jim Fix about his health and about what running can do, he begins to cough. And he begins to cough more and more. And I think Dick Cavett thought it was a joke, but it wasn't a joke. He died right there on the set. And here he was talking about health, talking about fitness, and he was all done before that show was out. You know, I think James is just right. We, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. None of us know what tomorrow is going to bring. Now, it doesn't mean you don't plan. It doesn't mean that you don't have a business plan. It doesn't mean that you don't plan to make a profit. If you're not making a profit, it's not called a business. But it does mean as you come to God, our heart ought to be so enamored with his will. And remember, in the context here, this is a sin of worldliness, Worldliness will reveal itself in this specific example of the sin of slander. And worldliness will reveal itself in the specific sin of presumptuous planning apart from God. And James just goes on. Look what he says. He said, you ought to say in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. But verse 16, as it is. In other words, here's the reality. You boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is what? evil. You're boasting and you're arrogant. And so here's the sinful arrogance of this. They were boasting and it's evil. Blanchard, the commentator said, and I think appropriately so, he said he was not condemning their business, but their boasting. He was not condemning, Blanchard said, their industry, but their independence. He was not condemning their acumen, but their Arrogance. I mean, they were boasting. Now, you and I well know when you look at that word, there's biblical reasons to boast, is there not? I have to refrain, you know, from all the places you can go. You could boast about certain things. The Bible says it's okay to boast. Like when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12, he said, if you boast, he said, I will boast about what pertains to my what? My weakness. He said, I will boast about my weaknesses. So if he was going to boast, he wasn't going to boast in the wrong thing. He's going to boast about in his weakness, because when he's weak, then he's really what? Strong. Paul said to the Galatians, do you remember? May it never be that I would boast in anything except the what? The cross of Jesus Christ. He boasted in the cross. Jeremiah said it's okay to boast. He said, let him who boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. But here, beloved, they boasted as if they accomplished everything with no thought of God. Never considered Him. The time, the duration, the place, the goal. It was all at their disposal. Kind of reminds me of one of the greatest, maybe the greatest Babylonian kings. You certainly remember him, Nebuchadnezzar. He strode one day out on his palace roof. And as he's on his palace roof and he's overlooking below Babylon's busy canals, he's looking at what one scholar called the glisten tiled walls of the city. They had gold in them so you could see Babylon from miles away. And before him, as he's on that palace, rose what was called the Hanging Gardens, one of the ancient world's seven wonders. And he could just not contain himself. Here's what he said in the scripture. Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? End of quotes. And we know what happened. Swift came the divine judgment as Nebuchadnezzar fell. On all fours. And his hair grew out. And his nails grew out just like eagle's claws. And he began to go about in this condition grazing. Can you imagine that? Hey, who's that in the palace? Oh, that's King Nebuchadnezzar. Because God humbled him and he began to dine on the grass until he came to his senses. I mean, I hope that's not us. Men, women. Whatever it might be. Moms, do you commit all these things to the Lord? I mean, perhaps no one expressed one's defiance toward God more clearly than William Henley. He wrote a poem, and the poem is called Invictus. Here's some of the stanzas from that poem. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I think whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody, but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. And then this famous line, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Interesting, isn't it? He must have been religious. It it matters not how straight the gate right out of the scriptures by the Lord Jesus Christ. How charged with punishments, the scroll. He knew something of God, but he said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. So look at the text again, verse 16. He says, all such boasting is evil. And then this, verse 17. Some commentators don't know why it's there. And I think, no, it's, it's there. It's in the Bible and it's there for a reason. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now you say, well, what's it doing there? Well, why is it there? One one scholar tried to say this should be over at the end of chapter 2, but you just can't do that with the, the Greek manuscripts. They didn't know quite how verse 17 fit in. Look at it again. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now you could say, well, what is the right thing to do and fail to do it. I think you just read it after the next verse in the context. In other words, you know better, beloved, than to plan apart from God. That's what he's saying. To you who know the right thing to do and fails to do it, it's a sin for you. You know that you need to submit your plans to God. But I must tell you, even in my... Own heart. I was convicted on verse 17. Convicted at all the times I, at sometimes when I get up in the morning and the ministry just begins to just overtake me. Planning. We've got Joe and Aaron's visit. We've got an intern arriving tonight. We've got a music intern arriving next week. We've got Summerfest, Kids Fest, and before I know it, I'm working right out of the gate. And I just have to remind myself, or my wife reminds me, Scott, have you spent time with the Lord today? And I'm just like, no, I haven't, you know? And I just, I, to Him, who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to Him it is sin. Listen, all of us exercise that independence. But listen, planning for the future is, Is sensible. But listen, saturate your plans, saturate your business, saturate your family decisions with prayer, and submit them to God. That's what James is asking. I read the headline. The headline said, car surfers are riding a deadly wave. What's that? They spoke in this article of Hannah Sartain. She had become somewhat of a legend at the Green Tree Skateland Roller Rink in Indiana. The 18-year-old was a car surfer pro. And in the contest she held nightly with friends in the rink parking lot, Sartain herself was undefeated. Her friends would later tell authorities the rules were simple. The surfer would sit on the hood of a moving car and the driver would take the car up to speeds of 20 miles per hour. Then the driver would slam on his brakes, throwing the rider off. And those who stayed on the feet won more points. Now, unless you're Cody Lehman, you don't want to try this, okay? But this is what, what they did. But on October 23rd, Sartain lost more than points. Police said she flew off the hood of a Ford Escort Escort, and landed headfirst on the pavement, and she died two days later in a coma. And you might, as I read that, think, that is the dumbest thing that I have ever heard. Are you kidding me? She's riding on the top of the car, and then you slam the brakes on, and they see you can kind of land on their feet. Foolish. But James might say to us, What are we doing regarding our planning for the future apart from God? You say, Pastor, is there any hope here in the text? Maybe some of you are just convicted. I was. You just look back and you think in your life, how many, have we brought our plans? Have we brought our future? Have we brought all of our life before the Lord? And so often we find ourselves at the feet of the gospel, do we not? And maybe you just think, is there, is there hope in this passage? I mean, this is the sin of slander last week. And now the sin of presumptuous planning apart from God. What hope is there? And of course, there's hope in the text. You say, what's the hope? Look back in James 4, 6. That he gives more grace. Therefore, it said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. See, it's, it's humility that allows you or I to come before Almighty God. Look at James 4, 10. He said, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will, what? Exalt you. Listen, wherever you've been, make it your aim today. Make it your heart's desire today to say, listen, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to commit my plans to an almighty, sovereign God who knows the hairs on my head, who holds every future detail of my life, and commit them to him. But it's a heart in submission, in humility to a sovereign God awesome God. I pray that you'll do that.